The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. So how many tonnes of carbon emissions do you produce? And how much should you produce if we're going to have any hope of getting to one and a half degrees before we trigger those tipping points that wreck the planet and mean that in our lifetimes, large chunks of it will be unlivable, that it will trigger all sorts of events, social events, political events, not to mention the climate events that we know will be incredibly damaging. So what does that actually mean to reduce our emissions? Well, there are some ways to measure it. And in this week's episode of When the Facts Change, I talked to Emily Maven Sutton, who is the country coordinator for Climate Fresk, an organisation that's come out of France, uh, which tries to turn the lessons from the IPCC reports on climate change and what's needed into real, on-the-ground pragmatic action. What does it mean to actually reduce your emissions? How how much do you need to do it? How does it change your lifestyle? What are the choices you're going to have to make? Can you really go to that wedding in Fiji? Can you really drive that car back and forth across the city every day four times to your work or to drop kids off at school or whatever? Can you really have a house that isn't insulated properly, can you really still keep eating meat five times a week? Those are the questions that we talk about in this week's When the Facts Change in understanding the two-ton rule. Rule is probably a strong way to phrase target. And something I've been thinking about for in recent months as I've come along my own personal journey, as they say, to understanding what needs to be done in terms of changing the way you get around, changing how often you get around, having to say no to people when they say, yeah, come to the wedding in July, but just book a ticket. What do you actually do and how would it affect your lifestyle? These are really tough, ugly questions and also they trigger all sorts of emotions, reactions, complete nonsensical, very human ways of dealing with things. This week on When the Facts Change, we go into people's lizard brains, maybe it's my lizard brain, (laughs) to find out what it is you have to do and what it means to reduce emissions in a way that actually makes sense. This week on When the Facts Change. 
Well, kia ora and welcome to Emily Mabin Sutton, uh, to the spin-off studios and When the Facts Change. Um, Emily, as the country coordinator for Climate Frisk and as the GM of Climate Club, it's great to have you here and find out a bit more about how to reduce emissions in a very sort of direct way and uh, how to um, think about it differently. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Tell me, why is two tonnes of carbon emissions something we should think about, plan for, hit the target, and what that actually might mean for someone in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who's you know used to doing a bunch of things? Right. So I took a two-tonne pledge this year to try and get my emissions below two tonnes of carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions equivalents. Um, I'm sure you've heard of the Paris Agreement, Bernard. Mm-hmm. So in that um, if you average out everyone across the world and our emissions, then the fair share is roughly two tonnes. So that's so when you say fair share um, and you're, you're, you're thinking about, you know, how do we reduce emissions to achieve one and a half degrees, that international agreement we signed up to, um, <laughs> And that means there's a certain budget of carbon that the world has before we can't produce any more. And so how have you worked out that two tonnes? It was much smarter people than me worked that number out. I believe it takes into account the average budget we have across all of the world and the global emissions uh, divided by each of us individually and how much we could emit in order to keep limit to limit global warming to under two degrees and ideally aiming for 1.5 because 50 percent of the emissions come from the most wealthy 10 percent then you can start to see that if the majority of people see that as the main aim we may end up approaching that two tonne. I was fascinated by this two tonne number which I discovered a few months ago because I I was actually uh, reading one of your newsletters and and could could see there was this thing which explained to me what I should be targeting. And as someone who you know loves a good target and loves a, uh, one of those things on the wall that lights up and <laughs> you know you hit it and it goes up or goes down or one of those telethon you know thank you very much for your kind donation we're up to three point four million. I love a good target. So <laughs> two million uh, two two tons of of carbon emissions. It sounds like a lot, actually. You know, I'm not going to be able to lift two tons of carbon emissions. If I thought of a of a two-ton block of um, steel, that would be enormous. But then I started to dig around a bit more and started to plug <laughs> plug my own numbers in there, and it was sort of scary. What what does two tons mean for someone in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, who you know maybe just drives to work? regularly and goes on holidays and maybe has an overseas holiday every year or every couple of years and maybe flies domestically or, you know, maybe has a gas stove. Just give us a sense of two tonnes is the target. What is, you know, a normal or an average emissions profile for uh, someone here? Well, average for New Zealand is about 16 tonnes. Yikes! Yeah, Uh, but that does include our exports. So 8.5 is what we each consume per year. But it really depends how much you fly and drive and eat meat, etc. So one round trip to Germany or Frankfurt uh, and back from Auckland is six and a half tons, which is equivalent to melting twenty square meters of sea ice in the Arctic, actually. 
Wow. So in terms of bang for buck, you know, when we've got a target, we try to get, you know, the biggest bang for our buck, or in this case, the smallest bang for our buck <laughs> in terms of carbon emissions. So what what are the, 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 hit, the hit parade things that we should knock off first if we really want to get down from eight and a half tonnes to two tonnes? Right. So I think it's really useful to do a little inventory. There's lots of tools online for that, and you can just start adding them up. Driving, definitely, on average, is about five tonnes a year. Flying, it's quite a lot. So again, just reducing the amount of fossil fuels you burn in each form, for example, flying, driving, eating much less meat, that's a lot more methane-focused. All of those end up helping us to get closer to two tonnes. I'm fairly vegetarian and try not to drive very much at all and aim to not fly at all this year. And my emissions at the moment when I did an approximation would be about 3.3 tonnes. So getting to that too is going to take even more changes. Wow. So what have you done? To, I mean, you've, you've talked about not flying so much and not driving so much. What's the next steps for you? Where, where do you find that last mile? It's very hard to say. At the moment, I think trying to cut out even more meat products, even more dairy products, anything else there. I'm going to switch a lot of my dinner. No cheese. I know, it's Ah. really hard to cut cheese. (laughs) But actually chicken emits uh, emits less than cheese. Cheese is a higher carbon footprint than chicken. Ah, so those are the things. Because when this question Mm. was asked of the um, then Prime Minister and then Opposition Leader, who are now in opposite roles, <laughs> um, their, their solution was, oh, you know, we've just bought an electric car, we recycle, we're doing a bit. Yeah, surprisingly, that is what most New Zealanders think is the most effective action is recycling. But actually, fun fact, if you recycle, you're letting companies pollute by producing even more plastic. If you mailed the plastic back to the company, that would be effective action because then you're telling them to either produce less plastic or produce a product that could be used and reused in its packaging. It's, it's quite a, an eye-opening exercise when you start to calculate your own emissions and what your lifestyle would have to do to reduce it. And um, the, the human in me with a lizard brain <laughs> initially goes, oh, no, oh, that's <laughs> going to hurt too much. Surely there's someone else <laughs> who can solve this problem. Or maybe I can just, I can plant some trees. They're lovely trees. You know, uh, I can plant a forest. Forests are good. Uh, that would solve the problem, wouldn't it? Explain for me why just offsets are uh, not necessarily <laughs> the, the way to go. Burning carbon is really hard to try and reabsorb, and forests take 40 years. We just don't have that time. We also don't have time for magical technological fixes because even though we're starting to ramp up carbon sequestration and capture, we really haven't got, so we've got 10 years or even less to 2030 to try and bend the emissions curve. And so there's just not time for those solutions. The only real solution is reducing the amount we emit. So you're looking at the sort of actions that individuals and companies and organisations can take. There are, of course, lots of debates about macro policies at a national and international level, but this is really focused on, you know, what people can do themselves. Um, As the country coordinator for Climate Fresk, can you tell us the story of Climate Fresk and why it seems to have had some success and what it's doing internationally. Absolutely. So I think one thing to note is that I've mostly tried to have influence on other parts of society. So government, business, that's always more impactful than reducing your own emissions because reducing your own emissions, you can reduce 
14 tonnes maximum potentially, or depending on how much you fly. But for example, if you get the government to take coal out of schools, which I did a couple of years back, that's thousands of tonnes of carbon dioxide emitted, reduced and avoided in future. So anything permanent and long-lasting in government or business is a huge change you can make. And so that's what, you know, a lot of the structural changes that are needed um, are what I also work towards and a lot of amazing people work towards. Climate Fresk started out uh, in France, I understand. Can you tell us a bit more about that story of um, how it got going, who the people are, and, you know, why uh, they focused on working with companies in particular to try to change things? So Climate Fresk came out of France. A French professor, Cedric Ringenbach, was trying to communicate the IPCC reports on climate change to his students. Um, And he turned the 6,000-page long report into a 42-card card game that takes about an hour and a half to play. And then you have an hour and a half to have a really fun brainstorm about what you can do and what everyone in the team or group can do to combat climate change. And what else is Climate Frisk doing internationally and how, how big is it? What's it up to? Well, France just actually rolled it out to every single MP. So all of the MPs and government officials will have climate education delivered to them over the next um, three years by 2027, which is over 4 million people, I believe, just greater than the population of New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. So what are you planning here in terms of educating a few MPs? Well, we would love to. Yeah, we are in some discussions with some folks around. I'd quite like to see someone deliver this card game to Simeon Brown. Um, So educating MPs, that's one way to do it. But what other um, ways can this become real for people, you know, in their families and in their businesses and organisations? Well, I hate to say it depends, but it really does. Every company and every person needs to look at how they have an avenue of influence in the world and where their emissions come from. If you look at Te Ao Māori, it's there's a much better perspective shift that you can look at in terms of how do I actually interface with the world and therefore how am I impacting the environment in many more aspects than also just climate because we're in a triple crisis with biodiversity and pollution. So what's what sort of things can you do at a at an organisational level in terms of got the card game, we've got the, um, in explaining this to the MPs, but what else can can be done? There's so many different things that companies can do across their supply chains to reduce emissions and look at how we're impacting the planet. I think realistically, if you come from the future 2100, we're going to have to have a really different world. So if you look at that and picture what the world will look like in a low carbon society, how does your company fit into the future? Does it fit in? What will you have to do to transform the way you do business in order to transform the way that your consumers will actually be living and interfacing with you in future? When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply, and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows, and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. 
Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. So what is that, I mean, you, you're painting a picture of something quite different and because I'm human, I don't like change. <laughs> and, you know, I've worked blinking hard for my particular lifestyle and I deserve it. And also, um, why should I change when no one else seems to be changing? I wonder if people understand how much their lifestyle, how they've set up their lives, where they live, how they get around how often they see their family, what sort of social events they, you know, value and, and go for. We're now sort of attuned and expect to be able to fly anywhere if we can afford it to, you know, weddings, funerals, concerts. <laughs> that particular rock star who doesn't come to New Zealand, so I'm going to Sydney or Melbourne or wherever to see it. Do you think that sense of how big the change has to be has soaked in at all? No, I think it's really hard to bury your head in the sand as well and not want to think about it. It's a tough one because when, when you think about, I mean, I think about my schedule for the year and uh, what I'm planning and what I'm expected to do, what my family expects me to do. You know, there's a big birthday party for my mother on a, in another country and the, and my, my brothers and others are saying, how come you're not uh, jumping on a plane for, for this? Or... Let's say, for example, a company I'm working with says, hey, we've got this big conference we want you to come to. What are, those, what are the techniques that we should use to start? Because in a way, you're going to have to start lots of awkward conversations <laughs> with lots of, lots of people. Yeah, I mean, I think initially what we need to do or what ideally would happen is that there would be systems that make all of the avoidable emissions reduced. So for example, where you could travel domestically, I'd love to be able to take a night train from Wellington to Auckland to see family or go back to work. So I think there's a lot of ways that we could, as an infrastructure strategy, for example, introduce better ways that help the average New Zealander live in a low emissions way that's also cheap. Because it's even if flying internationally is partially a luxury, you could still reduce a lot of the majority of the emissions in Aotearoa just by making a strong public transport structure exist. Internationally, it's harder, definitely. And New Zealanders as well. We, Of course, we want to go see family overseas. That's a really hard thing to, to stop doing. I think, yeah, I think let's start with the easy parts. And there's so many parts that are simple to start with. And then, I mean, I've got a new catchphrase, <laughs> which is, no thanks, I'm watching my emissions. <laughs> uh -huh. How does that go down, though? Because not everyone's on board here. There's a bunch of people going, ah, you wowza, you know, um, why bother? Um, the Chinese um, build a new coal plant every three days and, you know, India and, and China, they understandably want to be rich just like us and they're not going to stop. And surely can't we just 
plant some trees and, you know, buy a snazzy electric car and maybe do the things that they want for our international um, ex- export and import agreements. But we don't, surely we, you're not expecting us to really completely transform our lives. <laughs> but it already has transformed our lives. Cyclone Gabrielle a year ago cost $14 billion. We have a debt of $23 billion we're racking up in international climate debt and finance that we must pay by our offsets for our inactions. So realistically, we are already paying and we'll pay a lot more if we don't take action. So that's um, things that can be done at the company, individual level. One of the other, you know, uh, uh, complaints you could make about, you know, focusing everything or focusing your action on changes at an individual level is that in a way you are helping those forces who don't want change to internalise the blame on yourself uh, and to say in the way that you know, now people in poverty are blamed for being in poverty, you know, you, you brought it on yourself. You know, you're not very good at um, doing the right thing. It's your fault we're in this trouble. How do you avoid that problem of, you know, internalising the blame and allowing the, the bigger forces off scot-free where, you know, some of the biggest gains in, in terms of reducing emissions could be made? Mm, it's a really great question. I think the majority of the responsibility to address our nation's emissions lies with government and business. Business is 40% of emissions and government control all of the systems that we use to get to and from work and home and live our lives by. And there's a lot of embedded emissions in hospitals and schools and that kind of thing. So I think it's absolutely important that they do as much as they can, but we don't live in a perfect world, sadly, and we all need to take responsibility for our emissions. It is human-made climate change and we're all humans. So we all need to do our bit. And I think the the thing that I like to filter my action by is, will someone else see it? Which might be vain, but it might also be systemic and structural and impactful. You know, the more you do something with someone else or the more you try to impact government or impact business. Uh, for example, working in your job, how can you change the way your business works to be more climate friendly slash have a lower carbon footprint. So there's a lot of different ways that you can look at your own avenue of power and work out what you can do in a systemic way as well. And I think we need to both think that way and not necessarily shift the blame to another group entirely because, you know, when you point one finger somewhere, you have three fingers pointing back at you, as ah, I like to that's say. Line, yeah. <laughs> no, and um, one of the interesting things that you raised earlier was the speed aspect, uh, which for a long time, we, we thought we had some t- time to get this right. You know, we've got a few decades before one and a half degrees or before the storms get really bad. And, uh, you know, we, we're going to be near zero by 2050. Please elect me in three minutes. And I've I've done what I needed to do, which is to tell you I'm committed to this thing. Now, I'm not going to do it in the next three minutes, so you're safe to elect me in the next three minutes. But the speed thing. Could you talk a bit about, you know, how that changes the equation, why it has to be so fast, and what sort of things are going to be off the table simply because it has to be done fast? So not many people think about this, but there's a huge difference between 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, and 3 degrees. 3 degrees is hothouse earth dinosaur level extinction, people say. Potentially 3 to 5. Again, I'm not a climate scientist, but... It's really not a nice picture at three degrees above pre-industrial era. 
To put it in perspective, five degrees is how much colder the planet was when we were in ice age, on average, for global temperatures. So three degrees is very hot, especially over that short amount of time and probably triggers many tipping points. 1.5, you still see huge amounts of extinction of many species. Two degrees is even worse. I think 90% all coral die out kind of thing. So there's a huge difference. And by 2100, we will know, and we must bend the curve as fast as possible, and yet global emissions are still increasing. And humans have a bunch of psychological approaches to dealing with challenges. Um, and I talked earlier about my lizard brain, and there's, a, there's an element of that, you know, fight or flight, our inability to value correctly our gains and losses out in the distance. Uh, we have a sunk cost fallacy problem. We have a recency bias problem where we find it really difficult to take seriously anything beyond, you know, a year or two because we think, well, there's so many variables, you know, things could change. It's what's in front of me right now. The bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. Uh, I've really got to focus on the here and now. How do you how do you um, overcome some of those very human lizard brain problems and how we think about you know, different policy choices, different personal choices? I think a lot of the information we use is just outdated. And I think we think about policy and business decisions. For example, continuing to invest in fossil fuels. I think a lot of people think of that as still a good idea, much like they still think that most of the world is extremely poor. There's a great book factfulness that talks about how we're all relying on old data. But that's not the case anymore. Actually, living in a lower carbon way is going to make us healthier and happier, especially in New Zealand. We have a huge opportunity to change rapidly and experience immense wealth from renewable energy resources, that kind of thing. And at a policy level as well, we have huge benefits if we start really taking advantage of what we have here at home. And in business, similarly, you know, it's a great investment as well as saving huge numbers of tons of carbon if you start investing in ESG. If you start investing in ESG shares, portfolios, you actually can have greater returns and do the right thing. Emily Mabin Sutton uh, from Climate Frisk and, and also the GM of Climate Club. Thank you so much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks for having me. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.